Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Well, it's very kind of you. I've always loved color. I always have. I went to a very strict Catholic school, and I remember one time getting really, really told off because my white shirt was actually a very pale pink or lilac, and they didn't allow it. And then as you get older, you get inhibited. Most of us were a bit inhibited about wearing really bright colors and so on. And I worked in the city for 25 years, always wore a suit and tie very conservatively. But I, I just love big blocks of color. I always love fashion. And particularly as I've got older, you care a lot of us just kind of care less and feel freer to do what we want. And now I just buy what I want and wear what I want. The Naughty Bites Podcast. We often think back on the days of the classic gentleman wearing auto bow ties, a handsome bloke with a tilted Hamburg hat and a classic suit, martini in hand and a world of possibility at his feet. Think chief food critic Richard Vines and his mates Chef Pierre Kaufman, Chef Francesco Matsai, and Chef Michel Brou. Richard has been reporting in the restaurant world since 2004. He has been a journalist for almost four decades and is a go-to person to help foodies find great places to eat around the world. But if you didn't know, Richard has been my idol for the past 20 years and is one of the reasons why I studied food and got into writing. Richard, you're a man of many talents. You've travelled the world and enjoyed some of the world's finest cuisine. What has been your guilty pleasure in terms of food? Oh, gosh, I just love uh, curries, which I make at home, and that's what I eat all the time. I keep getting back to, you know, I don't have something I want like, I don't know, candy floss or pack the biscuits so I just come and eat my curries and no matter where I am in the world well except in India where I was recently no matter where I'm eating I tend to go for a curry and I've had some disgusting ones so I don't, I don't know if you've been around the world trying them I went to a place in, in um, Cusco called uh, Korma Sutra for example oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure I'd have curry as a guilty pleasure but it is my pleasure Indian food. Uh, Indian food. So you recently visited India. Yeah. What did you enjoy about staying there and eating the food? I go back to India quite a lot. It's my sixth trip now. I just love the whole culture. I love the sounds, the smells. I love everything about the place. And it's because it's my favorite cuisine, I like going there. The other countries I want to go to, like Brazil and and places like that but then i get there i don't enjoy the cuisine so much so i keep going back in india i was staying at Obroy hotels which you probably know are very very posh fantastic food so one was i mean i generally eat indian food there but one of the restaurants in the Obroy in um in delhi is by andrew wong who's got two michelin star french restaurant uh, sorry wow. chinese restaurants in london had that that, that was fantastic and some vanit batir indian food but i suppose the most special meal was at mask restaurant in mumbai which is usually in the top 50 restaurants or at least the top 100 restaurants list but it just missed out this year so i had to keep it quiet about that when i was there but um so you like Indian cuisine. If you had to choose, what would be your favourite dish? Gosh, 
I suppose something tandoori based, you know, I just from the tandoor, I just love very happy with chicken and things like that. Also, a really good um, go and sell vindaloo curry. I like oh, vinegar, yeah. I like that, those kind of flavors. I love those. Oh, yeah. A little bit harder to get in England, as you know, because vindaloo means something a bit different here or tends to be something a bit different here. No, definitely. I came across, because um, finding Indian restaurants here in Spain is really difficult. And the other week, Carlos and I found a Nepalese restaurant. And I literally cried because it was being back in India. It was spicy, flavoursome. The tandoori was just something else. And um, we go back to the beach just to have that. <laughs> oh, fantastic. No, as you probably know, there's not much be not been much Nepalese food in England. I was actually up in Scotland a few years ago and went to a place called itself Nepalese restaurant, just all very sweet to the English palate, I think. But there's a chef, Santos Shah, I don't know if you've heard about him, and Nepalese chef who was on Mars Chef did very well. I can't remember if he won. He was certainly a finalist. He might have won. Anyway, he's big in Nepal now and he's opening a restaurant in London and, and I've had his food. It's fantastic. So oh, I'm with you on that, please. <laughs> Definitely. So one of the things I love about you is that you've adopted impeccable yet effortless, effortless tailoring. You look sensational every time. What inspires you to immerse yourself in glamour? and that genteel ritz in today's fashion scene? Because even now you've got a beautiful, like, bandani top on. Well, it's very kind of you. I've always loved colour. I always have. I went to a very strict Catholic school, and I remember one time getting really, really told off because my white shirt was actually a very pale pink or lilac, and they didn't allow it. And then as you get older, you get inhibited. Most of us are a bit inhibited about wearing really bright colours and so on. And I worked in the city for 25 years, always wore a suit and tie very conservatively. But I I just love big blocks of colour. I always love fashion. And particularly as I've got older, you care a lot of us just kind of care less and feel freer to do what we want. And now I just buy what I want and wear what I want. And one of the things I love about going to India is there's a chain called Fab India. Okay. Sadly, I don't have shares in them, so this is not... Uh, it is a free advert for them, but it's not to benefit me. But I just buy a lot of stuff there. And today I'm wearing a kurta that I bought in, uh, I think, in Mumbai. I just love this with some white Indian trousers. And I'm going to a party today, and it's so hot outside in England. So hot for England. I mean, well over 30. It's probably not so hot for you. And I think, I think this is the thing to wear. Fantastic. So many people know you as the chief food critic, but your journey started off very different. You trained as a journalist in Sheffield, then you moved to Manchester, and then you moved to Beijing. What have you learned from that experience? And were there any personal obstacles you faced? Was there any personal obstacles that you faced during that time? Thank you. My journey, whatever, is more complicated than that, actually. My father died when I just left school. I was going to be a teacher, and okay. I quit teacher training to go home with my mother for a year or two took another A-level, then went to university. And I was living opposite Sadler's Wells Theatre in London and discovered ballet, which I loved, and started going to ballet all the time and began writing about it for student newspapers. So that's how I became a journalist. And it was quite tough to get in then, much, much tougher for people now, I think, but it was tough enough then. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was quite a hard work. I mean, you had to do two and a half years in the provinces at that time under the National Union of Journalists' uh, kind of rules for working on Fleet Street. So I went out into the provinces and the Daily Mirror was the hardest for me. I was terrible at the job. I just was really 
couldn't write those headlines, couldn't do the copy. But as a freelancer, I was entirely dependent on one person's goodwill. And it was he was good to me, but it was such insecurity. I hate it. Then went on to the Times and then obviously 13 years in Asia and Beijing and Hong Kong, all learning so much. But I came back to London in 95, joined Bloomberg, which was a very, another very tough company. I don't know if you'd know yeah. about it. The corporate culture was, you know, the hard work, long days, short holidays, all this kind of stuff. But I just knew I had to make it work. I decided to buy a house in London and mm-hmm. those don't come cheap. No, so definitely. Well, hard for years. It was only when I stopped work last year, I retired, that I realized how hard I had been working. And I have to say, I'm very good at doing nothing. That, <laughs> it, it's like, you won't know what to do. You won't get up in the morning. And um, on the contrary, I love just this time to myself. And even this morning, I'm thinking, oh, I have to do this podcast today, but I've got so much, so many other things to do. So many Definitely. other things. Actually, sitting, reading a book and having a cup of coffee, which I love. Um, oh, fantastic. Which, of course, is even better. And then I'm going to a restaurant party at lunchtime outside on the terrace by the water, drinking champagne, which is, you know, I think... Fantastic. Yeah, it's very... Um, it's a you're busy I, being fabulous. I, I recommend retirement to people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so during your time, did you have any guidance or mentorship? Not really. I No, I, I wouldn't say I did. I, I, it's funny, I've just never been into that. I, don't, I mean, I'm happy for people who get it, but I never had it. Okay. Funny thing is when I got the job at Bloomberg, some people asked me, how do you suddenly become a food journalist at the age of, I was, how uh, old was I? I was 50 years old. And um, Bloomberg were looking for food critic and, I, I'd heard, um, they didn't advertise, I just heard, and I applied internally, and they said, have you done this before? And I said, yes, I used to do it in Hong Kong, because this 2004, we didn't, everything wasn't mm-hmm. online then. Now they just say, show us your, you know, show us your stuff, but they'd had to take my word for it, and tried me out to do stuff, and um, it worked out well, quite well. So for the first year or two, I was doing it in my spare time at Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. But what I did was to contact chefs and ask them if they'd come out for lunch. Because that was like a masterclass. You go out with somebody like the chef Jane Osborne, uh, Shane Osborne, who's now in Hong Kong with a Michelin star, had two stars in London. And you sit having a meal with them and they talk about the food, what's on the plate, how it's presented, what the options are, what the chef's done. And that's, I just learned that through, learned so much from hanging out with chefs. And then uh, I became friends with the chef Pierre Kaufman and we became good friends. And I guess... He's the closest thing I have to a mentor, but we're not that different in age. I always think of mentors as a generation older. Than yeah, the no, definitely. Bleeding onto Chef Pierre Kaufman, you've been described as the, as the tenacious twosome, and your life is about eating and drinking and writing reviews about restaurants. But you both mentioned that it's not about bashing the restaurants. It's about both of your industry experience giving guidance to these places. What has that been like? Yeah, I don't like critics who go slagging off restaurants for a sport. It's so easy to write bad reviews. They're very funny. And I notice when people write them, I'm talking about some of the big names, they always say, this gives me no pleasure. And then you can see what fun they're having. And when I was reviewing for Bloomberg all those years, I just tended to, if I didn't like somewhere, I tended not to write about it, just write about somewhere I like. So, you know, so that people who want to go out to dine, you give them somewhere to go, and somebody who's doing a good job, you give them encouragement. And it would be, I would have to 
really feel that a chef was it was uh, the enterprise was very uh, cynical or something before I bother attacking them. And Pierre feels that even more strongly. Of course, Pierre's been in the industry for fifty years, more than fifty years, in the kitchen, and he's a great champion of chefs. And he is no interest in going and criticizing places, which made it a bit difficult for us to pick places to review because he only wanted to go places he was pretty sure he'd like and wouldn't go somewhere very new, for example. And Pierre doesn't like Indian food particularly, so sadly we haven't been to any Indian restaurants. <laughs> Um, leading on from this, you're, you've interviewed a number of political leaders from Lee Kuan Yew and Nelson Mandela. Most people can only dream of that. How did this happen and what thoughts were going through your mind? I was a foreign editor on the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong for uh, more than five years. And um, I made it my job to try and speak to political leaders. And a lot used to come through uh, Hong Kong, you know, for short visits. And so I got friendly with all the um, consulates and so on. Got friendly with their people and the diplomatic people in Hong Kong so I could find they were coming. And that's how I did it. And I concentrated particularly on Asian politics. Though um, Nelson Mandela was my big, big goal, because uh, obviously he was coming out of jail and he was, I think, the most famous person in the world. And I managed to get that interview. I knew the people at the Malaysian High Commission and uh, Nelson Mandela was going to Malaysia to uh, try and fundraise for the African National Congress. And um, I managed to arrange it through them and interviewed him at the Hilton in Kuala Lumpur. And yeah, it's just weird meeting somebody you've heard about your whole life. Probably, you know, if you look back on the 20th century, I think a lot of people might say he's the greatest person of the 20th century. I don't know. Probably, that yeah. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew, by, well, not by contrast, he did great things for Singapore, but he had a very scary reputation for interviewers. When I was going to interview him, there was quite a tough woman journalist in Hong Kong. He'd actually made her cry in the interview. Oh, my God. He, you know, if he didn't like a question, he'd turn around on the interview and attack, attack you and... His particular thing was, if you hadn't done your homework, if you asked him a question where he thought the answer was out there, um, he'd attack you. And this is, people don't understand, this is day, but days before Google and the internet. You couldn't just look up stuff. You know, you had mm. to really put in time and work to do it. And actually, I interviewed him three times, so I passed I've, that test, but I was still, wow. very scared, still very scared of him. Oh, my goodness. Well, well done, you. Um... Many people always talk about their childhood, um, you know, surrounded by food, the favorite dishes. What was it like for you growing up? Was meal times something that you and your family enjoyed together? We did always eat together, our family, and we didn't have the TV on or something, which I guess people do now. My mother, to be honest, wasn't really a very good cook. I feel a bit disloyal saying that, but she, she wasn't a terribly good cook. And But they really indulged me, my parents. I loved Vesta meals. Do you know, you know Vesta meals? Yeah. The precursor of ready meals. And I used to cook chow mein and uh, paella and stuff. I'd never heard of, and I just love those flavors. I think the umami and so on. And I never particularly enjoyed uh, food at home. And things, people always go on about uh, Sunday roasts and so on. I was just not very interested. I'm, I'm still not particularly interested in those. But the biggest thing for me about food as a kid was when I was at primary school from the age of five to uh, 10 or 11, 
they made us finish everything on the plate. And if I didn't like something, I couldn't swallow it. I really had trouble. And I used to, all the other kids used to go out to play and I'd be on my own and I'd have a teacher and he said, you have to eat that. And it was food that I'd have trouble eating now, disgusting stuff, you know, boiled cabbage and nasty, fatty, overcooked meats. And the particular thing I really couldn't swallow was beetroot. I still have that chef's love beetroot. Yeah, I don't like it. So I... I always liked food. I really always liked food. Loved ice creams and sweets and all these kind of things, as, as children do and grown ups too. But I didn't have very happy uh, food memories as a child. Do you think that's inspired you to become a food critic today? When I was young, we didn't go to restaurants much. We, uh, first of all, there wasn't that culture in England. They all need middle class or working class people didn't go to restaurants really. And uh, when I started going, you know, for very occasional curry or steak, when I must have been, I don't know, 18, 19, it was such a treat going to a restaurant. I've never lost that, even though I'm 68 years old now. I still consider it a treat to go to restaurants. Mm-hmm. I think it's not as much the food, it's the whole experience. I'm the same about hotels. We never stayed or virtually never stayed in hotels, and I'm still very excited to go to hotels now. So, um, I've come to an understanding of food quite late in life, honestly, but I've had a love of restaurants all my life. Wow. And um, because of the restaurants, socially and emotionally, eating has helped to create interesting and long-lasting bonds with people in the the industry. So, you know, you were saying that you met chefs and now you're really good friends with... um, Chef Pierre Kaufman, what has that experience been for you? Because you've travelled all over the world and built, you know, friendships. I immersed myself, once I got this job, I immersed myself totally in restaurants. And most of my friends are from the restaurant business or whatever, or, you know, connected with it somehow. Mm-hmm. Some food writers, some wine, some chef people. That I have had, have had, and I have some good uh, friendships in that. But, uh, you must never, I think, as a journalist, you should never get too above yourself. Some of the people who, you know, were supposed to be my friends, once I left Bloomberg, I found, you know, I, I didn't hear from them at all. I, you know, I'm a, a bit cynical, I'm afraid. But there are some great people in the business, and I've got some great friends. Apart from mm-hmm. Pierre, who's about my best friend in the business, is a woman, Emma Reynolds, who owns Tonkotsu restaurants in London. She's got about 16 now. Fantastic woman, and people I really value as friends. Well, so you've recently retired and you mentioned retiring you would recommend. You've only been retired for about a year. Yeah. In that year, what have you done? <laughs> Eating and drinking is much, not much different from what I did before. I'm just not getting paid for it. It's a, I don't have the stress, thank goodness. The I always found blooming very, very stressful. Even when I was on a holiday, I could get a call saying something had happened and could I do something and so on. And uh, I slept with my phone by my bed for um, 26 years at Bloomberg. And wow. now I've just got the charger in the other room. And if somebody would call me in the night, they can, you know, <laughs> I could deal with them in the morning. Um, so because of um, COVID and so on, I haven't traveled that much. I did have one trip to switzerland just before i retired but um other than that uh, i'm reading a lot i've got a whole shelf full of books i've read in that time and i love reading and um 
I have had finally had a 16-day six, holiday in India. It's the longest I've been away for uh, I know, 20 or 30 years. And um, wow. I'm thinking I might just do more holidays as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're more than welcome to join me here. It's amazing weather and lovely food. <laughs> and I'll be your personal guide. Um, that would be fantastic. So, definitely, food, food here is amazing. I have like I do love it. Like it's very local, and the the meats, the meat is something else. It's, it's so delicious. Um, your your whole life and your career, your journey, is really inspiring. Have you ever considered considered writing a memoir? <laughs> I would love to do that, but I'm a bit, I can't say discreet, but I don't really, you know, the things that interest people in memoirs are the things, uh, I don't know, the revelations and so on, you know, like mm-hmm. chefs have been out misbehaving with and so on. And I never want to write that. I should write something about my life, but I think I'm getting too lazy, you know, to be honest. I, Your retirement. <laughs> when I think about doing stuff, oh, I'll have a think about that tomorrow. I'm not. Not very motivated, I'm afraid. So that might, uh, I'm afraid all those stories might go with me. Well, some secrets are best kept, so yes. definitely. <laughs> um, it's, like, it's like Pierre, if I just talk about Pierre a minute, he tells me amazing stories about, um, you know, his experiences in the kitchen and so on, amazing stories. Now he's go, ah, you, know, you should write a book. He said, no, no, I wouldn't. Never, never. <laughs> because you know growing up my mum wasn't a fantastic cook in comparison to her sisters but the stories I had with her were the most enjoyable stories even though the food wasn't ideal (laughs) it was good you know um but I think stories like that are the ones that are the best told or shared so I don't know if you know, but augmented reality is hitting the restaurant scene. And there's a famous one in France called Le Petit Chef. And it kind of immerses you into the culinary journey. Have you gone to a restaurant that's used augmented reality as a sophisticated theatre experience? I've been to a place in, um, in London called Park Row. I don't know if you know it. Mm-hmm. And they have... Uh, yeah, I think I'm not sure what augmented reality is, but they have a table there where you're there's all videos going and sound things going and weird things on the plate and so on, like some uh, right. fictional journey and so on. Maybe it's that, and uh, also the fat duck, of course, has some Blumenthal, has some weird things in the restaurant. But to be honest, I, I mean, I, I like you know, I like novelties now and again, but I'm pretty focused on what I eat. Do you see what I mean? I'm, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm a bit old-fashioned. I think if food is really good, I'm not sure it necessarily needs all that stuff. So I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Yeah. Certainly the wrong generation. It's no, but I, I think it's curious because I think people now are trying to add theatre to your eating experience. And now, because of COVID, they've added it to menus. You can yes. see a digital menu and things are slowly changing. But I think like you sometimes, I like to just sit and eat. As opposed to everything beforehand. I went to a place recently, I mean, I say recently, it's the past month or two, where they have a a Japanese dancing and theatre show you're sitting around. I thought, 
a bit weird, but okay, I, you know, <laughs> why not? And um, they were doing Nicky Cuisine, and all the Pisco Sour came. The guy put it on the table, and as he's walked away, he said, it's vegan. And I thought, oh, what's okay. that Then I drank it. It means the egg whites on top was something, I don't know what it was, it tasted like shaving drink. It was <laughs> when, then, you know, with apologies to all, you know, people with vegan, you know, diet, I just thought this is not for me, you know, and don't push it on to me, you know. <laughs> so I would advise against vegan pisco sours. No, definitely. I, I, the thought of that just doesn't make my stomach feel great. There is an amazing um, Peruvian Japanese Peruvian restaurant here, and their pisco sours are just heavenly. I don't order dessert. I want to have a pisco sour. It's that delicious. Yeah, I think it's amazing. They're two particular eaters. I went to a place in Miami, I think it's called the Mar or whatever, and just amazing food. And I was knocking back the Pisco salsa. I liked it so much. I went to every meal at the same restaurant. This is about 10 years ago. There wasn't, didn't seem much in the way of restaurants in Miami now. I understand then. I, I now understand it's a bit of a hot spot. And in London, um, what's it called now? Koya and Chef Sanjay Dravedi. And that's where I really discovered Pisco Sours. <laughs> We need to go to some. I'm no off switch, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, totally agree with that. Um, and finally, you mentioned that you've eaten over 20 countries. And are there any chefs or restaurants that you would like to visit, but you haven't had the opportunity to do so? I have, there's a place in South Africa called Wolfgats. I don't, I'm not sure if you heard about it. No. There's a short-lived restaurant awards, which I was a judge on about five years ago, called, I think they're called the World Restaurant Awards. They announced this, it's a seaside hut in South Africa. They named it the world's best restaurant, which I think was a bit of a gimmick, to be honest. But they employ local people from the village and so on, and foraging and all this, and... As I say, you set an encounter beside the sea and the, you know, far from far from Cape Town and so on. So I'd probably like to go there. That might be my next, you know, the place I'd like to go. But places I really wanted to go over the years were a place like El Bui, which was so famous, and um, Nova, and Mirazor, which is the current holder of the world's 50 best restaurants in the in the south of France, which was lovely. But when I travel now, as I say, I tend to go to a rest, uh, country of the cuisine I like. So apart from India, France is somewhere, and Thailand, and of course, I love Chinese food. But um, if there are an individual restaurant I would want to go to, I, I would probably have been there by now. Oh, well, it's been short and sweet, and I've loved you have like, loved having you on the podcast. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.